Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hey there, Crazy Diamonds. A brief introduction to today's podcast. Today's conversation is with Kenny Baker. Kenny has a studio in Tennessee, somewhere in Tennessee, and he's an Eldoa practitioner, a Soma practitioner, a Czech practitioner, and he also has competed in Ram. That's the race across America, in case you didn't know, on a four-man team. I first heard about Kenny on Paul's podcast, and then more recently I heard of him on the Driven podcast, which I've been listening to quite a bit, gotten a lot out of it. And when I heard Kenny on there, it reminded me that I wanted to reach out to him and see if he wanted to have a conversation, and I'm grateful for the opportunity we had today to speak on his world and how he addresses his work with clients. We've got a lot of common ground as we're both trained in the Czech system, and we unpack a little bit about what that means and how we serve to meet the client where they're at and also work to become what we say is the hollow bone. That is, I don't really view myself as a healer. I would say it's more accurate to say that I get out of the way so that a client may heal. That is, I bring tools to the table to help them in their healing process. That's another way to say it. And I think Kenny would agree with that synopsis. A couple other minor points. During the conversation, I mentioned another podcast, which I've been listening to recently, called the Joanne Averson podcast. And she's a woman who's trained with Ida Rolf and also mentions Thomas Meyer's work quite a bit. Ida Rolf is the person who created the Rolfing methodology, if you didn't figure that out. And Thomas Myers wrote a book called Anatomy Trains, which is all about fascial lines, we'll say. And Joanne had a really interesting point in one of her podcasts. She's had several good things to say in the episodes I've been listening to recently, but one in particular that stood out that I wanted to mention in my conversation with Kenny, but failed to do so was 
that there are no levers or pulleys or hinges, strictly speaking, in a body because a, bio, a body is a biometric system. It's a bioorganic system, a cybernetic system, which is just a system of systems. So whenever we think about levers, we're thinking far too simplistically. There's no movement that's cleanly in one plane. There's no XY axis movement. This is a Cartesian myth. It's a relic of simplistic thinking about the way the human body moves. And she brings that up in her discussions to illustrate the importance of fascia and how fascia plays such a non-trivial role in the movement of any human body. So I wanted to point that out because I began to make that bullet with Kenny in our conversation and I failed to come 360 on it. The other bit I'll mention is that it's been a busy week here in the world of cycling at the World Cycling Championships. This is October as of the time of this recording, 2022. And Ghana just set the new hour record going faster than Boardman in his Superman position finally. That's pretty cool. And he also set a world record in the pursuit, the 4K individual pursuit, which wasn't surprising after he set the hour to me. I will say his hour was interesting and everybody's talking about his crazy 3D printed bike and that's pretty cool. Technology is always an interesting thing, although not always the most interesting thing to me. I will say that Ghana gave up some distance in his record. People have asked me what I thought and I think this, the guy went fast as hell and he gave up some distance for sure by not riding on the black line in the corners. If you wanna see a perfect execution of an hour record, go look at Alex Dowsett's ride. He was pretty much welded to the black line. And many people have heard me say this before, but track cycling is a little interesting because it's the only sport I know where it's legal to cut the course. When the ball's out in tennis, it's out. You miss the point. When you cut the course in mountain biking, you get disqualified. And if you go off course, you are required to enter the course at the same point at which you left it, thus not cutting off anything. Most sports are like that. In fact, every sport I know of is like that. Except track. And the reason I say that is because when you put the sponges below the black line for an hour record or a pursuit or a 200 meter time trial, if you're a really good bike handler, you can complete one lap in 248.5 meters. But they'll still count as though you rode 250 meters. So you can actually cut the course. So bike riding, track cycling in particular is an example of a sport where you are given a little bit of leeway. And if you are a really good handler, you can take advantage of that leeway. And far too often what I see are riders who just focused on aerodynamics second and watts first. Watts, watts, watts. Watts are watts, my most despised expression. Technically true, but also missing the entire point. And when we focus on watts and aerodynamics, but we also do not focus on line, we can accomplish so much and yet at the same time leave stones unturned. To have a truly masterful performance, and this is me speaking from a lens of humble recognition that Ghana did something that no one else has obviously ever done. He still left 
distance on the table, no question. And you can see that every time he's above the black in the turns, he's going uphill and doing extra distance. Idea, you guys wanna dork out on minimal gains? Here's my idea. I'll throw this out there and see if anybody picks up on it or has already done it. I don't think we have the technology to do this yet. Robbie Ketchell, are you listening? Probably the only person I know who might be capable of pulling this off. In a road time trial, if we had hyper accurate data of the road profile and GPS data, you could probably run an algorithm in a 40K twisty European time trial with turns and corners and cobbles and hills, uphills and downhills and descents. You could run an algorithm to use the surface of the road, the entire width of the road to run the most efficient line. What am I getting at? If you had a 40K TT and someone ping-ponged back and forth between the entire width of the usable lane they had, both directions, they would do extra distance, just as you're doing extra distance when you ride above the black in on track. But on a track, it's really easy to see when someone's doing that. In the road, we don't have any idea where they should be riding. But if you were to make a line using our super accurate GPS data and our road profile data, which would probably require driving the course of the car and scanning the road and then looking at elevation changes and you guided the rider to go around those elevation changes so that they wouldn't lose half a kilometer an hour or a third of a kilometer an hour by going over an unnecessary hump in a road that was you know 50 meters long and they took the optimal line through a corner to maintain speed given the road surface the trajectory of the turn the width of the road on the exit the apex of the corner the speed at the which the rider was traveling etc if you optimized all those things then you could make a far superior path for a rider to follow during a time trial and the stone age version of that would be to get all that data and then drive the course of the rider and kind of tell them where they should be on each part of the course and they could probably more or less remember it if they were capable of remembering those extra details while going hard in a time trial which probably most riders are but the high-tech version would be, we can get away with this for two races and then the USI will outlaw it. You put a laser pointer on the front of the bike that's arrow, of course, and it points on the road to where the rider should be riding as they're doing the time trial. Or you make a heads-in display on the helmet that shows them where they need to ride on the road with a little arrow to follow, a path to follow. So they should be in the right wheel gutter of the road or the left wheel gutter wheel gutter, I'm talking about the car path, or the middle, they should deviate around a small hump in the road, even though that's extra distance, they gain more because they don't go over, they don't gain and lose the altitude, etc. Also, you factor in wind and parts of the courses that are shielded, so we overlay weather data on top of that. So this is an insane amount of data that I'm thinking about, just an idea I had. Again, Robbie, Robbie's the only person I know who's capable of handling this or theorizing about it. There you go. There's my billion dollar idea for the day. Somebody go forth and make a bunch of money on it. Anyway, that's enough blathering on before we get to the conversation with Kenny Baker. Thanks for listening, everyone. I appreciate you. And don't forget to check out endurobearings.com for your amazing discount on their super cool products. I've been super happy with my stuff. Thanks. Ciao. Well, uh, Kenny Baker, welcome to Cycling in Alignment. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. 
thanks for making time. I appreciate it. Um, let's let's start a conversation today with a few a few bits and pieces to let people get to know you. I mean, I'll just address the white elephant in the room first of all. You know that Kenny Baker is also was an actor who played R two D two, right? For sure, same name exactly. So we just have to call that out. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I used to uh, play around with the neighborhood kids and tell them that you know we shoot scenes in the summertime when school's out, and uh, you know could yank a few chains that way. Nice, nice. So that was always fun, <laughs> but not, and, not too many people know that. So that's. Uh, we got something. Not that many people know that. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, certain circles, of, of course, but the Kenny Baker, the connection, the name. Yeah. And you and I are about the same age, so we both grew up watching Star Wars, probably, I'm guessing. Uh, yes, for sure. Yeah. Probably one of the first movies I saw in the theater, I believe. Yeah. I've noticed that people of, um, I'll say, our generation tend to either kind of be like sci-fi side or a little more like cowboys and indians kind of stuff yeah um, yeah i probably had a equal uh exposure there i would imagine but obviously sci-fi started to really take over with you know more updates and technology and things like that so yeah younger days was the cow you know the cowboys and indians you played outside and yeah uh, that seems to be a thing of the past playing outside for a lot mm-hmm. yep I grew up in Boulder. Uh, we had a, a home in the foothills above Boulder. So I, my childhood was running around in the forest, like throwing rocks at deer and stuff. That's awesome. Like finding spiders and whatnot. You grew up in Tennessee, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fairly similar. I mean, it was a um, <clears throat> small town, if you will. It's gotten much bigger now, but uh, you definitely got outside and there was hunting and fishing and hiking, camping, boating, all the outdoorsy things that again people still do but not quite i think to the extent they once did but maybe that's coming back yeah i mean i think during covid we had an explosion of outdoor stuff and some it really was localized depending on where you lived right for sure yeah i mean there was definitely a uptick in like cycling for example you know huge i think they're still trying to catch up with you know bike orders so maybe yeah. maybe next year, I think I was what I hear, maybe by spring, they'll catch up with, you know, you ordered your bike in 2021 and it's just now getting here, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. And components are starting to become available slowly again, but still having to um, hunt and gather. If you want a full bike, if you want to sell a customer full bike, it's like you're ordering a cassette from Italy and a derail from yeah. who knows where else, right? Exactly. Yeah. So also a question that I keep meaning to ask my guests, but often fail to do so, but I'm going to try to capitalize on the opportunity today. Call it a bit of an icebreaker question. All right. What'd you have for breakfast today? Oh, that's a good one. I had uh, yogurt and raspberries and okay. I did have a bit of a treat. I had a, uh, what was that? A cinnamon scone. Nice. So I like to have things like that in the fall. It's kind of a comfort food, if you know what I'm saying. But I try to stay mm-hmm. away from gluten as my gut doesn't really care a whole lot for it, as long as I don't overdo it and I can get away with it sometimes. Mm-hmm. How about you? Uh, well, we're a couple hours behind you here. So I got up, did a little qigong and tai chi, mm-hmm. a bit of meditation, and then had breakfast 
uh, just a few minutes ago with my wife. So I had, uh, I do one coffee a day is kind of my standard, very rare that I would have more than one. So I do a shot of double espresso with some goat's milk. We have a farm local here that does raw goat's milk, cheese, uh, and yogurt. That's nice. So, and I've been making, I've been using the milk to make kefir, mm -hmm. wow. which has been really amazing. That's, that's, I think kind of a magic bullet for my gut since I've been doing the goat kefir made from the raw goat's milk. Yeah. The goat, the, the goat products, if you will, those seem to be a little bit easier on the stomach. So, yep. uh, yeah, I kind of shift my, I'm, I'm definitely, a, uh, as a colleague of mine today said, bougie coffee person. Um, mm -hmm. I'll sort of go from a coffee press to a pour over to espresso to, you know, yep. maybe, maybe drip for a while. Um, but it's about time to go back to the espresso again. I like to put butter in mine. Got that one from mm -hmm. Paul years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's my go-to. I'm definitely a fan of offsetting the load of the caffeine and the coffee with mm -hmm. with emulsified fats. That's why I use the whole fat goat's milk. Yeah. But butter I can do as well. I do goat butter sometimes. Uh, I also use cinnamon in my coffee, which I find helps blunt the effect a little bit and make it not quite so strong. Yeah, I haven't tried that. I'll try that one. Uh, but yeah, it's a good fall one. It, it definitely the, the 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 fats, as you said, kind of shuttles the caffeine, so you don't get that jolt. That's yeah. what I found. So he's a little easier on the stomach too. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then I've been I've been focusing on getting more protein in the mornings for me. Uh, after trying kind of different formulas for years, like more, I'll definitely taper or uh, modify my meals based on what my activities are going to be for the day. So if I'm going for a long ride. More fats, more carbs. proteins, or carbs. Uh, I'll have more carbs. More and, complex, I'm but assuming. always, yeah, for sure. And I would always balance it with some fats and protein. I'm not. I was never a guy who could just eat oatmeal with maple syrup and go ride. Right. I was always insulin sensitive enough to where I would just just crash and burn after 20, 40 minutes somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. My blood sugar would just tank. Uh, so I learned pretty early. I had to balance it with at least one egg and some cheese. Mm -hmm. or, some sort of fat to help blunt the delivery of the carbs and keep the blood sugar a little more stable. And recently I've had the opportunity to use a super sapiens and kind of confirm all those numbers, which has been pretty cool, which maybe is a good segue into our conversation. I mean, you spent years as a bike racer and, and I often talk in my pods about how people who end up in the, the world of coaching or working with humans to optimize their movement, what we do as athletes, I think, is we kind of go spelunking and find our own, we have our own adventures and we have our own trials by fire, right? right. It's like, oh, I'm going to raise my saddle 35 millimeters <laughs> and see if it gains me a bunch of power or I'm going to try this weird food or this super carb drink or whatever. And then you get all these lessons and that's one way to gain your education. Then I think you and I have somewhat parallel paths in this respect as we've spent all this time as racers and now we go back and we, um, dot all the T's and cross all the I's and learn things like you're a certified strength and conditioning specialist. You then you, uh, you can teach Eldoa one and two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've done or, Eldoa and I'm in the SOMA program as well. Although that's sort of taken a little bit of a backseat and slowdown since COVID and, and all that. Okay. So I've not managed to get back into that quite at the speed I was at, but we'll get there eventually again. Yeah. Yep. So you know, it's like we can either go the pathway of being in a lab and taking lactate samples and 
getting a degree in next biz, or we can learn our lessons in the trenches. You've done some of both. You've had been in both camps, I would say. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I did a little, um, I degree in exercise phys in college. Um, actually spent a couple of years in the exercise phys lab working and was very fortunate to, uh, have some really great professors that, uh, had close relationships with, had actually, uh, a study published on uphill cycling seated versus standing, looking at economy and, and VO2 uptake and, uh, had that published as an undergraduate, um, course with oh, cool. a, a couple other guys too, but, uh, and the professor that oversaw that his son's actually now racing for rally and quite, uh, doing quite well. So, okay. Stephen Bassett. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, Stephen. I know the name. Yeah. But, yeah. He just started right with rally. I think last year, maybe year before, but he's, okay. he's doing great. But uh, uh, I was teammates with Jonas, who was one of the, the main guys behind that program for years on Shackley. Right, right. So, yeah. So there goes into a segue. So um, a fellow moves into town here. This was 97, 98, I think. Didn't run into him for a while. It's like, oh, we need to go ride. <clears throat> so I'm like, okay, let's go ride. And I was a little, I have to say, I was a little uh, intimidated at first because this guy, I'd, you know, I'd seen this guy on the front of uh, publications and things like that. So anyway, start racing with him mm-hmm. and uh, see if you can figure out who this guy is. First day out, we're going uh, some rolling terrain and we're hitting like 40 plus. And I'm thinking, my, what is this guy on? Uh-huh. And uh, going out of town, we'd go on rides. Going out of town, sun's going down and we're going the wrong way, you know. I'm like, there's something wrong with this picture. I have to be at work at 5 a.m. tomorrow and I'm it's 8 30 and we're riding away from town and it's going to be at least a couple hours before I'm back but uh he nearly rode me into the ground but probably really helped me to get to one of the best seasons I'd ever had um but uh Bostosaurus does that ring a bell yeah Kent that was my guess (laughs) uh but yeah he's he was something else but um I, I walked on quotas so to speak uh wore the Shackley jersey with Ken. He was like, I need a teammate. So unofficially, of course. But um, it was fun racing with him and kind of a uh, little ego boost to be able to wear the jersey and that kind of thing and ride out there with him. And we would put in some pretty good uh, work together and with him. And it's pretty easy to work over, you know, these uh, at least regional races so we'd, we'd have some pretty good uh, results but it was fun mm-hmm. yeah kent um for people who don't know kent is sort of a legend in the u.s cycling scene for many years he was well known for being kind of a poster child for shackley which is the team i raced for from 90 well 96 97 and then again in 99 and 2000 but it was at the time the longest running domestic professional team and I think they, they sponsored that team for 12 years or 15 years or something like that, mm-hmm. maybe longer. And if you don't know Shackley, it's a multi-level marketing vitamin and supplement company. And they're still around, I believe. I think uh, so. Occasionally see their stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got a big headquarters in like San Jose or thereabouts, mm-hmm. uh, maybe East Bay somewhere. And Kent was the kind of number one guy. He was, 
at the time he was revolutionary because he was racing at the pro one, two level at the age of 45, 50, 55. And he was winning races. Oh yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think he was, uh, I don't know if it still stands, but at the time, I think he went to the 96 Olympics. He was 42 mm -hmm. or three, I think when he went, yep. um, and one spot for that particular event. So, yep. Pretty, uh, I was at the Olympic trials when he earned that spot. That was a big deal. Okay. People were, yeah, it made a lot of waves. Yeah. He's got a lot of stories about that, <laughs> but, uh, which Ken has a lot of stories, but good guy. <laughs> yeah. We rode together. As we all accumulate. Yeah. Yes. For sure. We rode together a couple of times this year. It was fun. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, gotta get back with him get my yeah. get my butt in shape are you riding much these days um on and off again like i said i rode probably one of the last rides i did this year was with kent that was in the summer and i kind of was like every so often i'll take time off from the bike and kind of go to other priorities if you will and and uh and then when i get you know a yearning i'll come back to it so it's it's about that time I keep trying to figure out if i want to i i racing i don't know if you still race <laughs> at all you know it's it's in your blood and it's like part of you or at least for some of us um but it's such a time consuming activity if you will and as you know you have to race or i feel that way you kind of have to do some racing in order to be somewhat competitive depending on what level you're going to compete at and to do that takes you know time money usually away from home, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of a sacrifice. For sure it is. That word used to really bother me when people say, oh, I sacrifice so much for my sport. Because to me, you know, to steal words from Mike Creed for a moment, he always used to say, I didn't choose cycling, cycling chose me, mm -hmm. which I definitely identify with that. I feel like I got struck by lightning and kind of almost didn't have a choice other than to go into cycling when I discovered it. Mm -hmm. It pulled me so strongly. But I, so I never saw it as much of a sacrifice for me. There was, it was sort of that colloquialism of for a man or a woman with a, a why there's always a how, mm -hmm. uh, you just figure it out, right? You get yourself to the airport, you figure it out, you go, you deal with whatever you have to deal with to be a bike racer, all the waiting and the hotels and the bad food and, you know, whatever else you gotta, whatever other obstacles are in your way, the injuries and missing people's birthday parties and such weddings but now i do see it as more of a sacrifice in some ways and i agree with what you're saying about racing and i would add to that that i think some of it also depends quite a bit on the expectations i have about racing i do still race a little bit for me part of my practice is to regard racing in a much different way you know there's a period of my life where i went so all in on racing a long period and so much of my identity as a person was hung on the results that I had in that bike race. That was, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. <laughs> people have often complimented me, not often, people have complimented me at times and said that I'm a fast learner, but in this respect, I was a very, very slow learner. Had to slowly put down that mantle of results. Mm -hmm. the, the Wikipedia list of who I was as a bike racer and what I accomplished. And that's easier said than done. I think I've made great progress in that respect. So when I approach a race now, it's very much about, it's about community. It's about connection with the old self, but in a way that 
checks the ego at the door because I have nothing to prove anymore. I mean, I'm 50, like who cares? So if I go to a bike race, I very much am there to enjoy the process, connect with other people, maybe have some coaching moments if they're integrated and they flow freely, mm -hmm. uh, just observe, watch how other people are handling competition, right? Connect with my body, connect with the event. And I had the chance to do that this year at Steamboat uh, and the gravel race and the path sort of opened for me to jump in there at the last minute, which was great. And so I went for it, did the long race, the 142 mile race. And I mean, I haven't ridden 142 miles probably since I raced Philly, you know, mm -hmm. which the last time I raced Philly us pro championships, which is 156 mile road race for those who don't know, I probably, the last time I raced that was probably 2000 and I don't know, three a long ass time ago. I mean, I ride my bike a fair amount, but I don't go out and do these 300 K rides. Right. So I just jumped in there and was like, well, I know how to do this. I've been doing it for 35 years. I'm just going to eat right and keep drinking and fueling and be smart and know when to let the group go. And I probably got dropped 22 times that day, but I still managed to finish on the podium in the old man race. <laughs> awesome. Um, I don't know what all that means. Like I'll say that race suits me pretty well. I think that's another key point. If I went and did a race that had steamboat doesn't have that much climbing and it's in my backyard. So Colorado boy, I'm already at altitude, you know, whatever. It doesn't have a ton of long, steep climbs. Long, steep climbs are, are the furthest point from me on my off the couch ability, right? Mm -hmm. Like I could jump into a crit, even a pro one, two crit that was dead flat today and probably do fine, honestly, because right. I learned how to corner fast early by necessity because <laughs> I didn't have a big engine. And I, and I'm arrow. So, you know, pack experience, good cornering aerodynamics. You can fake a race like that. Definitely put me in a rolling road race with a bunch of steep hills, like an East coast kind of up and down mm -hmm. sort of thing. I get slaughtered, slaughtered. So <laughs> choose my bike races carefully now, or just show up and, you know, let it be what it is. Right. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about all that? Well, you've got a, an extremely impressive CV. There's no doubt about that. So. You've done, you did a lot in your day. And that definitely, uh, as they say, well, you've got muscle memory. That's definitely mm -hmm. there. Um, Old man strength. And uh, yeah. And, you know, like you said, it chose you. So <clears throat> you've, you had some ability there that was just waiting to be, you know, uncovered. But uh, yeah, the sacrifices, when I speak of those, that was when I was racing, I didn't look at it as a sacrifice then. It's what I love to do. And I did it. And, um, it's more now you've got family, you know, you're married, you've got responsibilities. That's when it becomes more of a sacrifice. Um, oh, I'm going to go away this weekend and race. Um, it's, you know, maybe, maybe a couple times a year. That's okay. But, uh, you know, uh, 46 weekends out of 52, maybe not so much. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, definitely you can, there's certain races you can get in and, uh, fake it, um, with a little more ease. Like you said, the flat crits, things like that, that was definitely my forte in the day. And I had to really train for, uh, unlike, well, I'll start saying like yourself, I really compliment you there. Colby. Um, for me, time <laughs> trials were not my forte until I met Kent and, Mm -hmm. I actually started after him dragging me around uh, 
the hills of uh, East Tennessee here, I actually started placing in time trials. Um, between that and him, I guess, teaching me how to hurt more, uh, which he, he knew how to do, uh, or still knows how to do, actually. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the road racing and things like that, that's not as easily faked if you're not really out there training. And, again, even the day-to-day -day training is, is challenging. Um, you know, as we get older, like I said, there are the priorities. And, and yeah, what do you have to prove after a while? It's like, you know. Um, and like I said, hey, I'm a 50-something here. No one's really looking at you going, oh, I wonder if that guy's going to do this season. You know, it's you're not on the national calendar circuit or anything like that. So, hmm. I mean, we can always imagine the people that we hypothetically think are observing our our path or our trajectory in the sport. And and those people probably do exist. I mean, there's an active community of masters who are still setting our records and, you know, going to masters worlds. And I played in that arena for a little bit mm -hmm. uh, and found, got different things out of it. Um, and the, the times, the speeds just keep getting faster. Right. Yeah. I was going to say that that was something that crossed my mind. I was like, you know, maybe one day masters, that'll be, that'll be fun. But oh my gosh, these guys now are training like pros. You know, some are, some are, and yeah. it's like, how am I going to compete against that? <laughs> it's, it's almost like, hmm, not sure we even need to go there. Um, it's either, you know, either they have been really smart and set themselves up. So financially they're, they've got a lot more freedom. So they've got the time to train or somebody's family's really suffering. So, um, you know, yep. um, yeah, that's, I, I, don't, I don't have that kind of, freedom as far as time and money and those kinds of constraints go mm. train that much. It'd be fun, really fun to do that, but not in the cards at this point. Some of them have already burned through the family probably as a result of that unquenchable quest to still compete. I know of some who are, who are racing pretty much training full time and they're divorced, they're single. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an indicator in some cases of how that relationship with cycling has overshadowed their relationship with other people. Uh, and there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. It can, it can be quite insightful when you learn those details about someone's life. And, and, uh, it reminds me of the conversation I had with Paul on my podcast about the evolution of the athlete, right? The four stages. And he named them as the child, the warrior, the king or queen, and then the wise man or wise woman. And when you're in the warrior phase, that's the phase where you're still really all about proving yourself in the competitive arena. You know, the analogy is you're walking through the forest, you have to look under every rock. You've got to explore every bit of your environment and conquer it. That's what the warrior does, right? And if there's a challenge, a mountain to climb or a river to swim across or whatever, then the warrior will take undertake that challenge. And that's the the essence of the competitive mindset is you got to win every bike race you can. you got to be as zero as possible. you got to optimize, you know, watch per kilo and nutrition and sleep and all the things. And when you really expand that warrior mindset out far enough, it'll infiltrate and dominate every molecule of your life. Exactly. Right. And that's the, the part that that's where sacrifice comes in. Because if you are married or in relationship, you've got children or you've got a job, you've got other commitments in your life, social commitments, and inevitably it, it pushes and pulls on those boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it sounds like you're 
you've moved past that warrior phase. Yeah, I think so. I think I have. <laughs> Let's hope so. No, I, no, I have. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were saying that the the I we all you're so consumed with the I that yes. it really starts to sabotage the the we and the all, and uh, you know it's not good. Like yep. you said, then you find out one day you wake up alone and for what to what end? You know. Yeah. Um, so that's unfortunate and sad. Um, and I'm happy I'm not there. I've, I've definitely had my uh, uh, Dark Knight of the Soul uh, trilogies, uh, more than a trilogy, but um, yeah, that's that's definitely not one of them is is making that mistake and going down that path. Uh, at least not for very long. My wife would like it. You're a little out of balance there, buddy. You need to come on, reel it in. Yeah. So yeah. that's good. It's um, it's that classic paradigm of the the woman, the yin energy, balancing out our our desires or need to go conquer stuff as men, right? Exactly. If if it's in the right relationship. Yes, yes, yeah. My my wife has always she's been a very uh, intelligent guide in that respect, um, and she definitely used to. We met in college, and um, I had, I guess, actually when we met. I was had only been racing a few years then, um, and I was almost ready to kind of quit. It's one of these things where I had a race and didn't have a very good um, result on a particular day, and I was like, you know, I'm done with this stuff. This is, and I'd kind of given it up until someone, a friend, said, "Hey, give me a resume. There's a team forming. Blah 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 blah," and <clears throat> I'm really happy that. I step back in, um, and uh, that's where where really I started to finally apply myself. And I think my wife was a big part of that. She she was very encouraging. Um, that season, I went to I think I did over ninety races that first season when I got a little more serious. And she was at probably most of those races. So and we had fun, mm -hmm. and uh, you know it's, it becomes like a family when you're on a team like that. And, people are supportive of one another and and that's what makes it really fun when you've got that network and that support um, but yeah she's definitely that uh as you said that yin energy that balances out the uh the male or the yang and uh thankful for that yeah yeah uh as one saying goes behind every successful man is a woman rolling her eyes <laughs> Yes, my wife does a lot of eye rolling. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> uh, agreed. I think that was one of the things that drew me into Masters competition in the end was we finally got a velodrome in, in Colorado, uh, Boulder Valley Velodrome, which unfortunately is sitting in the sun rotting right now. It's not currently being used, but a few years ago, we, we had a good community there and, you know, Thursday night racing. And I was able to go and meet some of my, my Masters buddies and we practiced team pursuit. Uh, you know, once or twice a week and built all season towards worlds. And, and really the result at worlds was just the icing on the cake, whatever happened, happened. And one year we won and one year we got silver and okay, great. That was cool. But for me, the value was being there with those other riders and getting the opportunity to refine our craft and talk about exchanges and just be in that little community. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then go through the process of traveling to Los Angeles and doing worlds and, 
and being through that process together. That was the cool part of it, uh, having that that community going through the growth of that system together. Because even when I was on the national team all those years, uh, there was no team pursuit program while I was there because Steve Johnson hated team pursuit after 96 because we got slaughtered so badly after putting all that money into those bikes and stuff. Mm. As it turns out, you can show up to Atlanta with $40,000 bikes for each rider and they can be the the next fat, the, the fastest thing since sliced bread. But when the Italians show up on EPO, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> there you go. They can be riding bikes made out of two by fours and still, still, uh, lap your team right so. right yeah i saw kids bike up close and personal those, those were nice bikes super cool bikes um, yeah and yeah he's he's yeah. tried to get me to ride on the track some he still goes out mm. occasionally i think he's i guess he went this year um yep but uh i saw him a couple of years ago at masters world before the last one before covid 2019 i guess that was yeah yeah he's he's, he's still winning yeah um, i'm not surprised I can't remember what his placements have been. I'll have to check into that now that I think about it. But uh, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I raced on the track some back in the '90s up in um, in Northbrook and and Kenosha. Okay. And okay. Got, got to kind of I'll, I'll say quote unquote rub elbows with um, Jamie Carney, Jonas, some of those guys up on the track, and uh, that was a pretty 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 cool experience. Um, mm -hmm. And. Uh, but uh, that's that was the extent of my track career was one season up there and and uh, just came back to Tennessee and there's there's no track here really there's the closest ones maybe Atlanta which is I'm not sure how many people call that qualify that as a track but the yeah and there's there's one in Rock Hill I think now which is about four or five hours from here which is a I think a very good track perhaps but a little too I far from here yeah. That's a that's a long haul. You gotta you're looking at a hotel and stuff. I was gonna ask how close Rock Hill was to you. Yeah, it's about it's at least four or four and a half hours, I think. And yeah, Andy's not too thing. far. It's six hours. It's a little bit more, but okay. Yeah. So let's unpack a bit more about your path of study. So I wanted to unpack a little more about your training, the things that you use to to help your clients. Tell us about your fitness center. It's called 51 Fitness. Yes. Um, maybe to be renamed at some point. <laughs> we, uh, I, okay. I had a uh, long history. Um, had a studio uh, that we started in mm, 99, I guess. It went for... 14, 15 years, uh, the name then was Mind Body Kinetics. And we were primarily known as a Pilates, yoga, personal training, massage therapy uh, studio, if you will, gyrotonic. Um, lots of lots of things in there. Um, but um, no, that's a long story there. It gets off on a tangent. We won't go down that path at the moment unless we need to. But yeah, 51 Fitness. Um, and primarily here, we kind of integrate check training, if you will, with uh, Givoyer's Eldoa and Soma programs, um, as well as some Pilates, gyrotonic work. I do some manual therapy, cranial sacral work, um, neuromuscular, and taking you know each client as an individual and really trying to meet them where they're, where they're at. 
and to um, help them kind of be a guide, if you will, whatever they come in for, which we have people who come in for usually more often some sort of um, pain or something of that nature that's been unresolved, maybe through other modalities or avenues. Um, and uh, work with them, like I said, using a check approach. So thoroughly evaluation, range of motion, spinal curves, uh, uh, SI joint function, movement screening, et cetera. And mm -hmm. talk to them about what their goals are, their needs are, and uh, develop a program, excuse me, develop a program around that. Okay. And you're trained through check um, CP2? Yes, I know he's. they've changed some of the, the nomenclature, if you will, or the titles, and I'm, I've, I'm catching up on that. Um, yeah. But, uh, I'm not sure where I even fall on that right now. It's something, that's as far as I went with my check training. I've done HLC1 as well, but um, definitely want to go back and complete that at some point. Mm -hmm. So just so the audience is up to speed check paul has two primary pathways in his education system one is holistic lifestyle coaching which goes to level one two and three mm -hmm. and then he used to have a system called check practitioner which i believe went to three levels four, four, no, went to four. four yeah and then they renamed that now it's called ims which stands for integrated movement specialist and there are five levels so they just blew it out a little bit and put more content in mm -hmm. i think and so i believe a a check practitioner two would be about equivalent of a IMS three plus or minus right. is my understanding of the conversion. I think that's about right from what so, I've gathered thus far. Yeah. So I just came from IMS four, which is all head, neck and shoulder Atlas subluxations starts to get into Atlas corrections. And, you know, it's typical of Paul's system. I mean, I mean, Paul's studied so many different modalities of exercise and different teachers. And now he's sort of, Put a lot of that behind him he's sort of forgotten a lot of it on purpose i think right he's probably forgotten more than you and i've learned combined but oh, there's no doubt he's he's incredible he's like a human encyclopedia uh but he's moved he's sort of moved past working with people on a physical basis mechanical biomechanical basis so mm -hmm. much he's he's less interested in that now because he's done it so much so he's heavy into the the spiritual studies and shamanism and looking at the psyche. Right. right. And one thing that IMS4 really emphasized was that study of the totem pole, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, the Czech totem pole. Yes, definitely. So just so people understand that, it's sort of Paul's map of how to work with humans. And it is an actual drawing of a totem pole. And at the top is the psyche. And he sort of talks about how everything flows from in the totem pole model from the top down, meaning mm -hmm. somebody has a knee problem. You've got to look further up the pole to potentially find what the ultimate root cause of that is. Right. And this is critical in Paul's system. And it definitely is not a left brain way to think about things. You know, we go to a lot of conventional PT clinics or rehab centers and the knee hurts and they're looking at the knee and perhaps a more, um, a slightly more evolved way to look at it or a more, I won't say evolved, I'll say a zoomed out perspective might be, well, let's look above and below the knee, right? right? Let's look at the ankle and the foot. Let's look at the hip. Paul system just takes that same idea and goes further and further and further and zooms out, 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 mm -hmm. looks at the entire body, but not just the physical body, the, the spiritual body, the emotional body. 
And so I'd love to hear your comment on this, but I, for me, there's an overriding principle, which is that all emotions have a viscerous or a somatic component to them. Definitely. Yes. Right. I mean, they have to, and this may not seem intuitively obvious when someone thinks about it, if they're not really haven't been introduced to this world, but I mean, the obvious example is let's pretend that you're walking down the street and witnessed a, a car accident, like a bad mm. one. Imagine what would happen to your body, right? You don't know the people in either car, but you see two cars collide and you've got a physical response to that event. Right. And you've also got a correlate, a correlating emotional response, right? You've got uh, fear for what's happened to those people for their safety. You've got sadness to watch them go through this injury. You've got um, concern and sympathy with what they're going through. Uh, you've got fear of that happening in your own, that can embody fear in you for that happening in your own life, because maybe you're about to get in your car and drive home. So that those are just a few emotions you might feel. Uh, you might feel anger if you saw one one driver driving, you know, negligently or carelessly, etc. So, but along with that instance, uh, the moment you hear that impact, that crashing of metal, you're going to have a physical response to that, right? right. Your, your spine's going to curl up. You know, you're going to contract. Your eye, your pupils are going to dilate. Your adrenaline's going to spike, and that emotional component manifests into physical responses. Mm. And so when you do the line of work you do, Kenny, it's, you see clients who come in, they experience pain. I, th I think part of the, the, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but part of your education, client education and discussion is around meeting the client where they're at, but showing them at the right moment that there is a strong correlation between the pain they're experiencing and the emotional state that either brought that pain about or is ongoing. Right. Is that a good way to say that? How do you? Oh, for sure. It's very well stated. Uh, everything you said there, um, that's a matter of visceral response. And you can, you can see that in people. It's like, you know, you hear the, the statements, you know, the guy looks like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders and he's, you know, hyperkyphotic. Um, mm -hmm. person's a pain in my neck and, you know, got neck pain, et cetera. And those, those came from somewhere, right? Those statements. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's something that's becoming more, um, accepted or acceptable or known by the general public. Whereas, you know, only maybe so many years ago, there was, you know, that would sound really out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, you see that and you have that visceral response, um, but it, you know, it kind of flows both ways. If you have, um, you know, someone's having a heart attack, what's one of the signs, you know, it goes from the heart to the left arm, if you will, pain. Um, but, um, yeah, more often than not, do you find out that people have, you know, um, self-esteem issues. So they may have some gut issues. You know, if you're from, a th you're, I know you've gone through the chakra system. If you're looking mm -hmm. at those, you know, people have uh, low back pain. They're going to have problems with stress in relationships, money, financial issues, things of that nature. And you can, when you work with enough people, you start to see that there's definitely a correlation there. It's not to say it's over time. Uh, obviously, if you have an accident or something happens, um, you know, 
perhaps you can say, well, that was due to a physical trauma, an acute, you know, an accident. Um, have you heard of uh, Dr. Sarno? Yeah. So if you've read any of his stuff, he talks about, you know, injuries, <clears throat> whatever the case, however they come about. Uh, it's not so much a physical, you picked up your bike and you hurt your back. Um, rather that there was tension there and picking up the bike was a trigger that re yes. resulted in some back pain. And I think that's really accurate as far as, you know, it sounds, some people are like, well, wait a minute. Uh, they just don't want to buy into that, that there's, you know, which I think it's, when you start to accept that, then you have to accept that there's some stuff I'm not looking at mm -hmm. and maybe I don't know about. And that's, that's hard to do. That's painful. It's a process to go through and, and to really look within. But um, to me, it's like, I always said the physical aspect of, of training exercise, if you take what I say with a grain of salt is the easy part. It's, you know, the, the psyche, the emotions and dealing with that part of us, the uh, insecurities and things of that nature. Um, working that stuff out. Why I'm not, why, why don't I allow myself to succeed? You know, why didn't I become a better cyclist? Uh, addressing those things, that's the hard part. Which is probably why Agreed. it's at the top of the totem pole, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, try to, I try to introduce that when, depends on who, who again, who's in front of you. You can, you can quickly tell that, you know, maybe yeah, we'll, we'll go there maybe eventually, maybe never for some, maybe mm -hmm. right away for others. As far as like, have you considered, you know, maybe communication is an issue. Mm. Is there anything you've, you've not been saying or you feel unheard in your relationships or whatever the case may be. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, yeah. Colby. But... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think about an analogy that my instructor, Matt Walden, used at the IMS4 class I just attended where it was brilliantly simple. If we look at how humans view the world physically, uh, actually, you know, our peripheral vision extends out to the side, you know, maybe 180 degrees mm -hmm. approximately, right? And one of the things we looked at is that field of vision and how restricted it is left and right eye. But more metaphorically, we see, you know, if you, if you took your arms in sort of a jumping jack position and extended them above your head and out to the side and down by your hips, that's sort of the range of your the end of your vision visual field well if i put my hands behind that i can't see there this is a metaphor for how all humans view the world we our eyes are on the front of our head mm -hmm. so we we have a large amount of things we can take in visually in our in our field right we can see cars and trees and sky and ocean earth but we can't see the backs of our own heads right so inherently as humans we have these massive blind spots we, we don't see ourselves in totality. We can't do a, a complete 360 mm -hmm. from all angles. Well, we learn, we learn to hopefully expand our visual field. That's part of, I think, our job as coaches is to illuminate a little bit of that backside, dark side of the moon, however you want to phrase it, the backside of our clients' heads. Say, hey, you know, this is what I see. And I think if you look at this, 
if you're willing to look at it and if you can look at it, that might help you grow and understand your express yourself better. That's sort of my my biggest goal, my biggest zooming out purpose for my clients is to help them express their highest potential, illuminate a path for them that will help them shine. And so that that dark side, I mean, that's that's everything ultimately. Mm-hmm. Because we don't see how we sabotage ourselves so clearly. We don't necessarily want to look at it. It it all depends on the client. And the the one thing I learned, uh, not the one thing, the most significant lesson I took away from my training with Steve Hogg, who was my bike fit trainer in Australia, was the lesson of bioindividuality. That, you know, the only rule in bike fitting is there's no rules in bike fitting. That is, every time a client walks through your door, you've got to you it's it's a tricky game because as you said you start to see correlations between a certain type of uh manifestation of pain for example low back pain and challenges in relationship or finance right we see those correlations however the second you assume that every client who walks through the door has low back pain they've got the same issue then that model will will the universe will immediately defeat or destroy or dismantle that model for exactly (laughs) it's sort of an ongoing lesson Mm -hmm. right so you have to go, hmm, okay, I've seen this with our clients in the past. How does that apply to this individual? And that's the that's part of what's incredibly challenging about working with clients is everyone is so unique, such a fingerprint. Uh, as Paul likes to say frequently, God is a novelty generator. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's so challenging and it's also so beautiful because then you start to see the nuance of each person. And I'll say... Um, you mentioned a minute ago, you said oh, it's kind of easy to figure out where clients are at initially. And I would agree with that on some level, but at the same time, I've had clients who really surprise me. Occasionally I'll, I'll slip in a little comment about something that I might be wondering as it comes out of my mouth. I'm wondering, is this person going to think this is total woo bullshit, you know? And they hit me right they're back. All over with, it. Oh yeah. They're all over it. Or they, they immediately, notice that comment and react to it in a positive mm-hmm. way. And it's like, hmm, that's so interesting. Okay. Again, don't shed the book by its cover. Right. Um, yeah. Have you had those experiences? Oh, for sure. It sounds like it. Um, yes. I've had, you know, I've had the experiences where, which I guess that's maybe that's becoming more, a uh, little more wisdom coming into play is maybe someone comes in, I start making assumptions or, you know, Year, years back we'll say um and formulating an idea of like oh, i know what's going on here you know I'm check level one now you know i've um, got this and then only to find out that you have no clue um yep. completely down the wrong wrong path um but yes it's it's definitely trying to be a blank slate uh, for the person in front of you and not come in with any preconceived ideas um, and just really being open. And it's sort of, it goes, maybe you could correlate this to like meditation. You're, you know, you're, you're going within, so to speak, to figure out things. And I would just, you know, be an observer. And that's what I really try to do now with clients is try to be just an observer and just listen. And I think that's something I'll talk about this occasionally with my wife or colleagues and that's how communication in our society as much as easy as it is to communicate. I mean, here we are doing something that 
20 years ago, this didn't exist. But we're communicating, you know, with live video. Mm -hmm. As many lines of communication that are open, how many people seem to never be on the same page when they're trying to communicate with one another, even face to face, mm -hmm. let alone, you know, across the world or what have you. And I think it's often because we don't listen or we're listening maybe with our intellect instead of, you know, maybe through the heart. And uh, kind of went off on a tangent there. Um, that I think that's the heart, that, that's, that's one of the secrets to me. It's like, okay, I'm gonna set my intention is I'm gonna listen to this person when they come in and I'm gonna listen to understand and really just be open, an open vessel um, for that person. And, you know, maybe that's all they almost, perhaps that's all they need to start their healing process because maybe, again, they haven't been heard, as I mentioned earlier, you know. I agree. There's a lot of power in, in truly making space in yourself to hear the other person, mm -hmm. whether that person's your client or your wife or your friend. And that's an ongoing practice for me. I think it is for everyone. Yeah, putting down your stuff. Hopefully, hollowing the bone. I Hopefully. guess is how we refer to some of that. Hey. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And I think in doing that, you learn about yourself as well. Maybe as much or more than you learn about the person in front of you. Agreed. I learn from my clients all the time. That's one of the best parts of the practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you get paid to do it. And you get paid to do it. What's that saying? If you do what you love, you never work a day in your right, life. Right. Although there are days where I definitely feel like I'm working. <laughs> no question. Yeah. Most days, in fact. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm. So great conversation. Maybe we can shift gears a little bit into a, a little more practical stuff. I would like to know. I would like to know a bit from you about how you use Eldoa and I've, I've had a couple people on my pod talk about Aldoa, but I feel like it's such a powerful tool for so many of my clients. Uh, maybe in your words, you can help us describe what the difference is between, we'll say, conventional stretching and Aldoa. How are those related and what's the crossover and what's the, what are the differences? Um, well, like, El, like, well, Aldoa, for me, it's, it's like a tool. It's like a tool in the toolbox, right? Just like check your vowels, if you will. You know, the more ability you have to, I hate to say weigh and measure, um, but at least gives you more insight, more understanding into what might be going on and you can connect common threads and at least you've got a direction then. And um, so that said, although it was like a tool and it's comparing it to conventional stretching. Eldoa is, there's an Eldoa for probably every joint in the body, right? Um, so some of the goals of it, you're gonna create more space between the vertebrae. Um, you will create more space for the disc, um, depress the nerves between the vertebrae, improve like proprioception, um, of that joint segment that's going to help uh you know the nerves that innervate 
say the lower extremities, for example, um, which is going to potentially, for someone who may have some nerve compression, they're going to, I won't say spontaneously, but soon afterward, to, you know, experience maybe a gain in strength. So it's a very targeted um, uh, way of addressing maybe a, a lesion or something that may may have resulted in some of these insults I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so it's great. You know, I mean, people have low back pain. So there's an Eldoa for every segment in the spine. Um, one of the more popular ones with Eldoa, I'm sure you've, I think you've done some, yes. L5S1, yeah. you know, at the end of your day or at the end of your, you know, your exercise, uh, doing that just to create some space there at, at that junction. Mm -hmm. So it does a, so many good things. Like I said, opens up, opens up space, decompresses nerves, <clears> helps, um, you know, hydrate the disc. Uh, how many mm -hmm. of us are a little bit shorter at the end of the day than we are at the beginning? Um, so it's a, it's a great tool for that. And with, that doesn't take a lot of time, you know, one minute per Aldoa. Um, right. So... Yeah, no, it's it's a great tool to have in the toolbox and really seems to work. Now, Guy, on all fairness, he's also got his, um, I know you're familiar with his soma training program and soma therapy programs. And those mm -hmm. are great, fresh way to look at training as well. You, To me, it's like you look at the body as a three-dimensional, you've got, you know, this muscle that we're used to looking at on, on a textbook or something. And we sort of just think of it that way. But now you start to learn it's like, oh, wait a minute, we can, there's the, there's the posterior aspect and there's the anterior aspect and there's so on. And we can really address those mm -hmm. areas with different stretches, different positions and myofascial stretching, for example, you're stretching, you know, not only a muscle, but chains of muscle and fascia that may have restrictions in it, adhesions that cause, you know, some inability or some sort of, uh, uh, challenge with movement so um, it's it's just a to me it's a really great tool some people use yeah. use Eldoa that's maybe all they do they just teach Eldoa um, for me it's like a it's like a tool I, you know I use it in uh, my programs as far as that goes with uh, clients and it's mm -hmm. it's a great way to teach a person to fish right um, give yes. them that and they've got that uh, once they understand the positioning and the nuance and so on of it they can do that for themselves so I, I definitely identify with that expression teacher teach a client to fish i'm far more interested in in education than i am in treatment mm. uh, i've always gravitated that way i recognize that there are times when treatment can be uh, occasionally you get the magic bullet you know somebody's atlas is out because they hit the deck mm. or fell off a ladder or whatever and you put it back in like that can be a massive that single act can on occasion be something that gets them a lot of bang for their buck it's the same thing every once in a hundred clients i have someone comes in who's struggling with severe back and knee pain and their cleat was loose and it rotated 20 degrees on the bottom mm -hmm. of the shoe. <laughs> and you go okay i think i know what's going on here you put their cleat back and then they're that's it that doesn't happen very often, but when you find those, it's worth every penny to them. Uh, 
the slightly more nuanced version of that would be when I do a bike fit with someone and they've been on the wrong saddle for a decade and I get them on the right saddle and 15 problems go away. You know, right. knee pain stops, back pain stops, because there's so many compensations that happen when you're sitting on a fence post, right? Get someone on the right saddle and all of a sudden everything just melts and disappears and they can focus on riding their bike mm -hmm. again for about six months until the next layer of problems surfaces, right. but we've made great progress, right? I think um, Eldoas can be, from what I've observed, they can be a pretty powerful tool in the tool chest because they work against the conventional paradigm of stretching a muscle, like you said, or a joint. You know, you think about stretching the psoas or the left hamstring or whatever, yeah. the soleus, and we engineer a specific stretch for that point. And one of the pods I've been listening to really recently that I've been enjoying quite a bit is this woman, uh, Joanne Averson. And she's from a dance and rolfing background. She trained with Ida Rolf. Mm -hmm. And she's now uh, also studied a good bit of Thomas Meyer's work. Right. And he wrote the book Anatomy Trains, of course, which many people are probably familiar with. He's doing some pretty groundbreaking work in that respect. And and the concept of an Eldoa is simply that you put the entire body under tension. So the, the particular pose may be focused on one vertebra, L5S1, as you use for an example. And I do that. I do L5S1 probably five nights a week. Uh, it's the last thing I do before I go to bed. And before I lay down, I should say. And I love it because each Eldoa is held for 60 seconds, as you mentioned. And it's also a 10 out of 10 on effort. So it's a little hard to describe over a podcast, but imagine you're holding that pose and you're pushing, you're extending the arms, for example, out and rotating them externally, which would be, imagine a hitchhiker position with thumbs up towards the ceiling, but twisted as far as you can. And that's just one aspect. So we're doing the same kind of movement with the feet, the low back, the shoulders, the neck, the eyes, even all these all these areas of the body are brought into that pose and they're held at maximum tension for 60 seconds. So it's like wringing out a towel, it's sort of an analogy I would use. And Nikki Costello, who's uh, a local Eldo instructor here, who I had on my pod in one of the very early episodes, she corrected me when I, when we spoke about Eldo, I was describing to my audience and I said, so it's like an isometric exercise. And she said, well, no, it's technically not isometric because you're expanding and moving. Mm -hmm. An isometric would be uh, a, a typical example of an isometric, just so people know what I'm talking about, would be a wall sit, right? right. You hold your, your thighs horizontal and your lower leg is vertical and you hold yourself against the wall. And the idea is to lock yourself in place under tension. And there's definitely held tension in an Aldoa, but the difference is you're continually reaching and expanding right. in that pose. So it's it's technically not isometric and hopefully you're gaining length, as you said, as the joints expand and you increase the distance between vertebra or other joints in that pose, then you're bringing hydration and fluid into that. Exactly. Joint. That's part of the mm -hmm. idea. The key word there being hydration, if you do an Aldoa really dehydrated, you're not gonna be nearly as effective. Yeah, you wanna be hydrated. Right. So okay. there you go. But yeah, it's a uh, yeah, decompression of that right. particular segment. As Kenny and I both take a drink of water. That's a big lesson for me too, is is constantly reinforcing that good hydration habits in my clients. Yeah, it's always uh you had your water today. 
people mm-hmm. get tired of hearing it here, but we keep talking. We keep saying. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and I'll add to that and say that maybe, maybe people have had this experience, but sometimes you go to test your house plants and you stick your finger in the dirt and it's dry as mm-hmm. a bone. Okay. My poor plant needs water. I'm sorry, plant. And pour a bunch of water in there and it goes straight through the dirt into the bottom of the pot. So hydration is like sleep. Uh, we've also probably all heard someone use this saying, you know, oh, I didn't get much sleep this weekend. I'm going to, or last week, I'm going to, I'm going to catch up this weekend. There's really no such thing as catching up on sleep, right. right? Those five days where you slept four and a half hours a night because you felt you had to get up early and get your swift ride in, or maybe you just couldn't sleep because you were anxious or nervous or whatever was going on. Those days are gone forever. And your body's ability to recover and the hormonal cycles you normally go through and the the glymphatic drainage you normally have during sleep, all those moments are gone. Mm -hmm. And you can do more of those in the coming nights if you sleep nine or 10 hours, but there's no such thing as catching up. There is bringing your body more towards homeostasis. But if you spend two thirds of your life out of balance, those, those, that period of time is gone forever. And that has an impact on your health, your global health, Mm -hmm. right? And this is how I think about hydration is if you go all day wrung out like a, a dry towel that was left in the sun and then right before bed, you drink a gallon of water, it doesn't really work. It also is going to mess up your say, sleep, right? your sleep. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> I'll tell people it's like your, you know, your body is, if you're 70 plus percent water and you're dehydrated, what do you think you're doing to yourself? What's going to happen to your organs? What's going to happen to your muscles, the tendons, the ligaments? your skin, you know, on and on and on. Uh, same, like I said, the same yeah. thing with sleep. So you got your foundational principles, right? Um, yes. So, yeah, the more we're out of balance we are with these basic elements, you know, uh, well, well, there you go. We're going to be that far out of balance. So, and those mm-hmm. things are free, right? Well, maybe not the water, but the sleep is free. Uh, mm-hmm. The water's relatively cheap, all things considered. So... I've always told, you know, especially like athletes, cyclists, it's like, you want to get faster? Here, here, here you go. Are you listening? It's like, drink more water, sleep more. You're going to get faster. Yep. You know, especially the sleep. I, that's great advice. Um, how many people yeah. overtrain or, or I used to say it this way. I was like, I don't know that people overtrain, they under recover. And there's other yes. elements we could go into, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the recovery. Or, or training inappropriately when you should be going hard, you're going too easy because you don't have the ability to go hard. You know, when you should be going easy, you're going a little harder than you should. So when it's time to go hard, you don't have the goods. Yep. So just getting that balance. Mm. And how many athletes do you know sacrifice sleep, but then they're on the couch doing stuff like uh, using that massage stick and hammering their legs yeah. for a half hour a day or... What's the other one? What, what are the, what's the little electro machine people? Uh, uh, well, you got tens units. You've got, uh, you've got your, yeah. your, your guns. Um, there are guns and yeah, things like guns. that. Foam rollers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of which if you're, depending on who you're talking to is like, mm, no, don't foam roller your it bands. That's not, you don't need, you don't want to do that. Now, a lot of people do it. I, a lot of people do it. And it, and it does I feel, feel it better. has its place. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah. It, 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 again, you it's disagree. like a tool if it's used well. 
at yes. the right time, right place. Same rule applies to everything. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I, I, I feel like foam rolling and self myofascial release has its place in a program, but um, I don't use it a ton and I don't recommend athletes use it a ton. If you're, if you're out there smashing yourself on a foam roller for mm -hmm. 30 or 40 minutes, I'd say something's not quite in balance there. Yeah. If you, if you talk with uh, someone who's gone through myofascial stretching, they'll talk a lot about, you know, what you're doing to their fascia. Your fascia has like, you know, a lot, millions of little water filled tubes that are like lines mm -hmm. of communication. And when you go in there with a foam roller and destroy all that, you've basically destroyed the communication between your foot and your hip or your foot and your knee, et cetera. So yeah. the myofascial stretching is a much more, you know, efficient, effective way of, of taking care of those areas. Mm -hmm. More elegant way. Yeah, exactly. Say, right? Yeah. I also think it comes down to the technique. If you're using a foam roller, like a rolling pin and just smashing back and forth, that's a lot different than, for example, a pin and floss technique. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Just like, uh, what does yeah. Paul say? There's no bad exercises, just exercises done badly or poorly. Yes. So yes. Yeah. We could do the same with therapies. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Kenny, thanks again for making time to come on the show today. I'd love for you to tell people where they can find out more about you. Uh, you can catch us at uh, 51fitness.org. Um, and just go from there. I'm, I am a horrible uh, social media person and uh, marketing. So um, I think you got to us through an email there at the website, Colby, if I'm not mistaken. So that would be the easiest. I heard you on another pod, actually. Okay. Uh, but now I can't think of which one it was, to be honest. Um, I was on, let's say the last one I was on was I Am Driven, and then I was on the podcast with Paul back in the spring or summer, I think. That was it. So. Yep. I heard you on Paul's, and then I heard the Driven pod, which I've been following as well. Okay. I've been uh, pestering Megan, Dr. Doug, to have, I would love to have Dr. Doug on my show. Um, we'll see if that comes to fruition they seem pretty busy with their book right mm -hmm. now so yeah learned a lot from from following them that's been great yeah so. well thank you colby i really appreciate it it's been fun yeah yeah thank you it's good to to meet you and know that you're in that part of the world uh and i'm always expanding my own network of people that i can trust to send clients to when they're asking me for resources locally so now i know you're out yes so. yes yeah, same here that's, uh, that's great. I'll have to tell uh, Kent I was uh, chatting with you for a, a bit. Yeah, please do. Get him so. get him plugged in on the pod world. I don't know if Kent's a podcast guy. <laughs> but. I kind of doubt it, but we'll see. We never, <laughs> never know. Kent's full of surprises. Yes, he is. All right. Thanks a lot, Kenny. All right, buddy. Take care. Okay, you too. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding, 
And while I think I'm reasonably smart, and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.